this week on Starting Advantage. People don't always realize this, but culture is going to happen in an organization, whether you plan it or not. But when you don't plan for it, it ends up being one of those companies that I worked with that I had to escape from because it's not good. It's not values aligned. People don't feel respected. They don't feel appreciated. They don't feel like they belong. Welcome to Starting Advantage, where first-time entrepreneurs gain encouraging insights on the strategies, habits, and mindsets of successful entrepreneurs. You'll hear powerful insights that you can apply in your journey. And it's about having the guts to actually do it. You know, I mean, all the planning in the world doesn't uh, solve for not taking action. So once you have that clarity and you can get dialed in on that day-to-day progress, that's where the magic can happen. You want to position yourself as a trusted solution partner for your customer base so that when they need something that you're in the arena of providing, you're who they think of. Follow Starting Advantage for free on your favorite podcast player or at startingadvantage.com. Welcome to episode 37 of Starting Advantage with me, Tanya. I'm your host. Thank you for joining me today. This week, we have a culture and leadership development expert on the podcast. We're speaking to Johanna Lyman about her entrepreneurial journey. You'll hear how her longing to belong led to a career of helping companies build brave cultures based on the principles of conscious capitalism. Johanna helps small companies get to their next level of success and build a culture that supports sustainable profitability. She's a certified coach and business development expert with more than 15 years of experience helping business owners build and develop successful businesses. I invited Johanna because she's a firm believer that profit is not the only thing that matters and that when you make decisions about what to do with your business, you should consider how it is going to impact all of your stakeholders while keeping your purpose and core values in mind. And that's what we're focusing on today. This episode is for you if you're interested in learning more about conscious capitalism, about how you can use your core values to build a brave company culture that actually increases the probability that you will outperform the competition as well. You'll hear Jana speak about why culture is going to happen in an organization, whether you plan for it or not. How you can find a supportive community as an entrepreneur using values alignment, and how you can develop your consciousness as a business leader. At the end of this episode, I want you to feel encouraged that just like Jana, you can use your core values to build a brave company culture. I hope that Johanna's story will leave you feeling inspired, especially if you're feeling a lack of belonging. Let's welcome her. Hi, Johanna. Welcome to Starting Advantage. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. I'm really excited for this conversation. Johanna, on your LinkedIn profile, in your About section, you share, I want to actually read it as a quote, my story of belonging, or not in my case, 
Start it in the womb. Ask me if you're curious. It's what drives me to help leaders build purpose-driven, wildly innovative, and fiercely inclusive cultures for companies to thrive in the 21st century. Unquote. So I can't resist. I am curious. I want to start here. Please tell me about your journey of belonging and how you got to be who you are today. I don't know why it surprises me when people actually ask that question, <laughs> because it is in my profile. But yeah, so I grew up, I was raised the oldest of six kids in a small community in central Massachusetts, very white, very lower middle class. And I never felt like I belonged in my family of origin, but I had no reason not to. Until I was 20 years old, and I brought my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband of 30 years, brought him home to meet my parents. And he walked into the living room, looked at the family portrait on the wall and said, how come you never told me you were adopted? And I just kind of elbowed him because he's a wise guy. He's always making jokes. But my mother turned as white as a ghost. And the next morning, she pulled me aside and she says, oh, I have something to tell you very dramatically. I'm your real mother and your father's your real father, but he's not your biological father. And I was like, what? So like my whole life up to that point, I had been living a lie, but all of a sudden it made sense why I had that sense of not belonging, even though there was no real logical reason for it. I would say probably note to self, trust your inner knowing always. That's what got me started. You know, I was bullied as a child, which I think so many of us were. So I always sort of had this dual edge of you don't belong here and, and you're too much, like too emotional or, or whatever, just too much. So that's sort of my core wounding, if you will. And that has led to the core gifts that I have that I share with the world. Thank you for sharing that, Ajana. That couldn't be easy to start feeling brave enough to share that with people. But as you shared that, I wondered, how did you decide what career to go into at that young age when you realized that you maybe were more sensitive or more aware than others or more emotional, as you say? Well, I actually knew when I was a little girl, like nine years old, that I wanted to be one of those people picking out the clothing that everyone wears. Of course, at the time, I thought it meant, you know, going to Paris and Milan and watching runway shows and picking the pretty clothes. But I went to college for fashion marketing and I became a buyer for a major department store and worked there for about 10 years. And my intuition, my inner knowing actually served me really well in I was really good at picking out the pretty clothes or the jewelry or the watches, whatever it was that I was buying at the time. <laughs> but I also just had this sense that I had more to give to the world, that there had to be something more important than, you know, making a woman feel great because she's got a beautiful party dress. I mean, that's an important thing, but it's in the scheme of things. So I ended up leaving retail and joining Merrill Lynch, which was a major brokerage house at the time. It's part of Bank of America now because I wanted to make a bigger difference. I was doing annual planning really as a buyer that 
if somebody had told me how much math was involved, I would have run screaming from it. But it turned <laughs> out I really liked that, like because the numbers made sense and I could plan something and then actually see it come to pass, which was really rewarding. So I became a financial advisor and I was working with individuals and nonprofit organizations to help them build their donor base. I had left retail because I had been asked to do some things that were outside of my ethics zone. And so I was like, there's got to be a place that's more ethical where I can transfer my skill set and do the work. So I landed on financial services very naively. I didn't understand that the financial advisors, at least at the time, I don't know if it's different now, 20 years later, they didn't actually care about their clients. They cared about their commission. And that was it for them. And so they would put people in products that weren't appropriate for them because that was the thing that was giving them the biggest commission that month. That was a fairly short career, about four years, I became a certified financial planner. But I just, again, was not aligned with my ethics. That's how I started my journey into entrepreneurship. At the end of 2004, I left financial services and I went out on my own and became a coach. And I never looked back. How did you make that decision? Was there a defining moment? Did something specific happen or was it just cumulative and then you just decided to know more? A little bit of both. I know that's kind of a weird answer, but it was a little bit of just the daily discomfort of this doesn't feel right. Like I don't feel right in my skin. And then with each of the organizations I left, there was a discrete moment where I was asked to do something. And I said, that's it. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. I must have too much, I don't know, integrity, ethics. I, I can't make it in corporate. Like there's not enough ethics in the corporate world for me to feel like I belong there. You know, so I never felt that sense of belonging. So when I went out on my own, it was, okay, I make the rules. I get to decide how to run this business. I get to decide how to choose my clients. I made an early decision that if I wouldn't want to have lunch with you, I wouldn't take you on as a client. And that has been an incredibly powerful guiding force in my life. I've seen you say that you believe Abraham Maslow was wrong about the hierarchy of needs that we have as humans, that you think the bottom of the needs pyramid isn't safety, but that it's belonging. Yeah. So, you know, we're basically the product of our ancestors. Scientifically, we know now that we carry the DNA of our ancestors in our bodies. So if you go back far enough, our ancestors were all cavemen and women, right? And so if you didn't belong to what was called a tribe, you weren't physically safe, Forget the rest of the pyramid. If you got booted out of your tribe, your physical safety was immediately in jeopardy, whether it was from a saber-toothed tiger, the elements, or a tribe that, you know, was a warring faction, right? So we are absolutely hardwired to desire belonging. In fact, I, I think it's that root of, I'm not good enough, I don't belong there's something wrong with me. And if anybody ever sees it, if they figure it out, then I'm going to be booted from the tribe, which is not a term that I 
typically used, except in this context, because it was literally tribes. So as an entrepreneur, especially as a solopreneur, and gosh, I wish someone had told me this 15 years ago, you've got to find your community. Find other entrepreneurs, because let's face it, if you're not an entrepreneur, you don't understand why someone would do this crazy thing because it takes up all your time, all your energy, all your money. Like it, it's an obsession, right? You have to be so deeply passionate about this or it's just not worth it. I have coached thousands of entrepreneurs mm. over the last 16 years and it is a rare breed that actually has what it takes to be successful as an entrepreneur. Now, there's another sort of subset that people think of as entrepreneurs, their talent for hire. Okay, so you might be a copywriter and you work for yourself. So there's this subset of folks that probably think of themselves as entrepreneurs. But a real entrepreneur is someone who grows, who builds something that can live beyond them. So if you are, let's say, as I was for a long time, a coach, and I was an abundance coach at the beginning, and I help people with their relationship with money, that business was entirely dependent on me. What I knew here, what I felt here, the business could not exist without me. Then I was a relationship coach, same thing. And it wasn't until I built this body of work that we'll be talking about called Brave Cultures that I actually became an entrepreneur because this is a body of work that does not require me. I've got all the training material put in place so that someone could come in and learn the material and deliver it just as well, if not better than me. Which is not to say that if you're a gig worker you know, that you do work for hire, that that's not valid. It is. You still have to find your people because your parents are probably saying, when are you going to get a real job? You know, <laughs> my parents still say that to me 16 <laughs> years later. Like, um, I've had a real job. I've been paying my own way for all this time. But there's that, that sense of perceived safety, which is an illusion, but that most people think of with having a J-O-B, that you've got benefits and you've got a paycheck and yeah, until the company downsizes or the economy trashes or whatever else, and then you're out of luck too. But you have to find your community because if you're doing this on your own and, and even if you've got some support, it is lonely business, isn't it? What advice would you give to entrepreneurs to find like-minded people? What did you do that worked for you? I first found people who were values aligned and it didn't so much matter to me what kind of business they were in. I wanted folks who ran their business according to their core values. One of the groups that I found is a group on Facebook and they've got a monthly subscription that you can be part of the community. They're called awarepreneurs. So these are entrepreneurs who are socially and consciously aware. If it's important to you to have other folks who do what you do, all the social medias have 
either groups or ways that you can find other people who are like you. I don't know why I'm remembering this book, but a Dr. Seuss book called Are You My Mother? About this baby bird who falls out of the nest and it's like wandering around going, <laughs> are you my mother? I wandered around for a few years going, will you be my friend? Are you like me? <laughs> you know? So it's just those like one-on-one -on -one connection. I'm a goofball, obviously, but it's like those one-on-one -on -one connections really matter. And then even if your community is one other person that you can bounce ideas off of, like that's going to make a huge positive difference. I'm so glad that we are in a time now where there's more awareness, that we can be more conscious as business owners. When you have your business and this is the first time that you're introduced to the idea of conscious capitalism, where do you start? So conscious capitalism is part of a greater movement of business as a force for good. Other organizations include the B Corp movement, the social venture circles. There are a handful of organizations that are all saying basically that profit is not the only thing that matters. Your people matter, the planet matters. And so conscious capitalism is founded on four basic tenets. And those tenets are that a business should be purpose-driven, that they have stakeholder orientation, not just shareholders. Anyone or anything that's impacted by your business is a stakeholder. And when you make decisions about what to do with the business, you consider how it's going to impact all of your stakeholders. Then the third tenet is conscious leadership, which is about leaders developing emotions, emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, and systems intelligence. And then lastly, I think all those three things come together to create a conscious culture. And people don't always realize this, but culture is going to happen in an organization, whether you plan it or not. But when you don't plan for it, it ends up being one of those companies that I worked with that I had to escape from because it's not good. It's not values aligned. People don't feel respected. They don't feel appreciated. They don't feel like they belong. I'm feeling very aligned with the B Corp movement because they, in the past year and a half or so, have made a real stand against systemic inequities and mm. for social justice. And to me, I don't think you can be a conscious leader if you don't have an equity lens. It's mm. not just about you, like what's happening to all the other stakeholders in your community and how are they being served or not served and whose voices are being heard or not heard. And actually Brave Cultures kind of came about from those four tenets of conscious capitalism. There are many roads that lead you home. I'm kind of a huge fan of figuring out your bigger why, especially for solopreneurs and especially in the first five years of business. Like, why are you doing this thing that is going to take so much of your time, energy, talent, money, effort, all of it? Like, why? You've got to be connected to a bigger why beyond just, oh, this seems like a good way to make money, because this road is hard. And just making money isn't going to cut it. How I found my higher purpose and how I recommend people do it is to think about 
an experience that you had growing up or as a young adult that you never want anyone else to experience again. So for me, it was that I never felt like I belonged. I want to make sure that nobody feels like that at work. Because I know that when we build a sense of belonging at work, people feel really valued and they're going to stay with you and they're going to do their best. And then we know that companies who have developed this strong sense of belonging have really engaged employees. And then companies that have engaged employees outperform the competition. So it's this beautiful, virtuous cycle, right? So for me, it was around wanting to make sure that people belong. And if that doesn't do it for you, then I would say, figure out what your core values are. And what do you stand for? What do you stand against? And somewhere in that beautiful stew is your business purpose. And I do like to discern between your business purpose and your life purpose. Because I really believe that all of us have the same life purpose, and that is to love and be loved. And that might sound corny as hell, but I believe it with all of my heart. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Love is this multifaceted experience, right? I often bring what I call fierce love. It's like that that energy of, I know what you're capable (laughs) of. And I am not letting you get away with less. And I'm going to hold your feet to the fire until you show up the way I know you can show up. You know, so I had a client tell me once I was scary and I was like, what? And then they explained that. And I was like, oh, that's just fierce love. We all need some of that. So, Joanna, you mentioned there about self-awareness, but this can be very hard to do objectively for ourselves. So how do you know or how can you measure if you're actually being self-aware enough to be objective about how you're showing up in your company or how you're impacting your employees? That is such a great question, Tanya. You can't know yourself objectively. You have to have some kind of a mirror, someone, a coach or a friend who's willing to be brutally honest with you. Self-awareness is one aspect of emotional intelligence, right? Tasha Yurik, who's a researcher, she's done a lot of work around self-awareness. And she wrote that 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of us actually are. So we all have blind spots. I mean, I've been working on this for decades and there are places where my blind spots come up and slap me upside the face. So I count on my team. I count on a close circle of trusted friends that I can just say, hey, was I on a line here? Self-awareness grows with self-reflection. I've had a journaling practice for 40 years. You write, especially when you get upset by something or you're angry about something, you just sit there and you write. You just keep asking why. Why am I thinking that? Why am I feeling that? And listen, because you know, trust your inner knowing. The answer is right there inside of you, but it needs to be teased out. And I have found journaling to be a great way to do that because it's right there in black and white or purple and white lately. Um, you know, and yes, I still use 
pen and paper and then go back and say, oh, look at this. Yeah. And then I'll even go back a few days later because once I've written it out, it's sort of in the hopper in the back of my head. And then I'll have other revelations that come a day or two later. You have to stay really humble about that, though, because the minute you think, oh, I've got this, I'm really self-aware, you don't. What I like to do is to also go through that process to write it down and then to find a soundboard to go check with someone after you've had the chance to write it down to make sure that you know how to articulate what you're thinking about this situation. What does it mean for a business to have a brave culture and why is it a must for a purpose-driven company? Brave cultures are found usually in conscious companies, but not all conscious companies have brave cultures. So it's a deeper dive into the four tenets of conscious capitalism. Brave cultures are purpose-driven. They're wildly innovative. They're fiercely inclusive, committed to inclusivity and belonging. And those three things are made possible in a container of conscious leadership. So if you think back to the four tenets of conscious capitalism, we match on purpose-driven, we match on conscious leadership, and then I think of the wildly innovative as tracking to conscious culture, and then the fiercely inclusive tracks to stakeholder orientation, because being aware of all stakeholders and making sure that everyone has a voice is a very inclusive thing to do. That sounds like an excellent practice to try and give everybody within the company a voice, but that can also be very challenging to do. So what tips or advice do you have for an entrepreneur who's listening now who wants to start to be more inclusive? I would say start with getting more curious. Entrepreneurs are intensely curious about some things, But then once we think we know something, forget it. Curiosity goes out the window. Don't let that happen. Bring in some humility. Recognize, especially when you're facing a a really hairy problem, you might not be the right one to solve it. Who else can you be asking? So curiosity and humility, I think, go a long way. Also educating yourself, especially if you share traits that carry privilege, like if you're white, if you identify as male, if you're straight, if you're physically able-bodied, you know, like those things carry some innate privilege with you. Even if you've had a hard life, those are things that don't make life harder for you. So educate yourself about what it means to not have all of those privileges. Also, I think it's really important, especially these days, to understand the systemic nature of inequities and how those impact individuals and businesses and justice. And it's an intense journey. I've been on it for a long time, and I still feel like I'm in kindergarten, but every minute of it is worth it. I'm so glad you brought that up because often as entrepreneurs, we're working so hard on building our business. Our world can become very small because every minute of the day, we're just thinking about how to make our business work and grow it. 
So it's so important to have that awareness that that is an area where you have to put some work in if you actually want to be one of those companies that's making a bigger impact. What do you find is the most challenging for entrepreneurs in this process to become more conscious? I think especially for new entrepreneurs, the biggest challenge to operating more consciously is that your number one concern is how to get more clients. But once you've got people paying you for your product or services, it's really easy and tempting to just ride that wave. And then you end up building a culture by default. You end up creating your values by default because your values are really the sum of how you do things, right? We've so many examples of companies that have a great list of core values on the wall in the lobby, but they're not living it. It's not enough to come up with a list of core values. You have to also identify what are the behaviors that someone could look from outside and say, I see they value integrity, or I see they value inclusivity. I think that is such a great reminder for any entrepreneur listening to take the time and go back and look at your values and then connect it with specific action steps that you're taking. Yes, absolutely. Identify your core values. And then what we do with our clients is we take them through a process where for each of their values, they rumble together and they figure out what are three behaviors that are clear and observable. Somebody could look inside and say, yes, they're doing that, or no, they're not doing that. Three behaviors that support the value and three behaviors that would be like early warning signs that we're on a slippery slope. So oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So vulnerability is one of our core values as a company. And, and one of our behaviors is we say the difficult thing, even when we're afraid. And so a slippery slope example would be if something comes up and maybe the team agrees to do something and you don't agree with it, but you keep quiet about it. Like that's a danger sign. And we have enough vulnerability-based trust built up on our team that we do that and it's welcome, but it's a practice. And then measuring the success or then the effectiveness is a better word, I think, <laughs> measuring the effectiveness of this. Do you recommend having regular check-in points like every six months or every month, every year? Every year we create a scorecard and the scorecard identifies our three big rocks, so to speak, like three big things that are the focus for this coming year. And then we have in categories of people, planet, profits, and product or products and services in our case. So we've got this scorecard with these four boxes and we have metrics for the year. And then we review them. We just had a quarterly business review last week. We review how did we do? And it might be that in one of the quadrants, we're actually not planning to start working on that until second quarter or third quarter. But every quarter we review, how are we doing? What do we want to celebrate? What do we want to get better at? 
don't forget the celebration. The celebration we forget all the time. I think that's so true. We do forget to celebrate because we're so focused on achieving the next thing. (laughs) And that aligns so nicely with being a purpose-driven company. I quickly want to touch on COVID-19. In your work, you are helping companies prepare to go back to work through or then post-COVID. And you've said that you believe there is no back to normal or even a new normal post-COVID. Why do you believe this and what does this mean for businesses? The normal that we were accustomed to was not normal. It was not healthy mentally or physically for people. I live in the Bay Area and people would have three to four hour commutes every single day. Oh my. Yeah. The stress and the pressure of the commute on top of the intense job is having a massive negative impact on people's mental health. Now, that said, for some people, the impact of working from home has had an absolutely massive negative effect on their mental health. So there is no one-size-fits-all answer. There's no cookie-cutter answer to this. So with our return to work strategy session that we're working with companies on, it's very individualized. And for many, if not most organizations, the exception of like restaurants and clothing shops, right? Those pretty much have to be in person. But for tech companies or for companies that have been able to function pretty well during COVID, why would you make people go back to work unless they want to? And I actually just read on LinkedIn today that only 18% of people want to go back to work five days a week. We say back to work, but we mean back to the office, right? You got to think about the quality of life of not having to commute, the quality of life of being able to set your own schedule. And I think what we're seeing happening is a lot of companies are just saying, oh, we're just going to go back and do what we did before. But everything has changed. So even if it worked before, it's not necessarily going to work now. So there's a lot of considerations to be worked through. And most companies are not really thinking about all the things that could go wrong. So from what I hear, Jana, I see it as an opportunity for entrepreneurs to check in with their team members and to make a collaborative decision on this. Is that the way forward that you would recommend? Yes. And that's part of what we do is a stakeholder survey to find out. And we break it down by department or division or job title because managers, for example, probably more likely to want to be in person because it is easier to manage other people in person. It can absolutely be done remotely, but it it takes a little bit more thought, I think. What mindset do you think has served you the best during your career journey? I've developed a whole mindset training based on the work of Ryan Gottfriedson, who is a researcher in Southern California, and he has a book called The Success Mindsets, which I highly recommend. And he's identified four sets of mindsets that are either positive, negative. The most common one that folks know about is the growth mindset. So Mm -hmm. growth or fixed mindset. And then there's three others. I would say for me, my success 
has primarily been driven by having a more growth mindset, meaning I believe that my success is dependent on what I do, what I learn, and what I do with what I've learned versus just some innate skills that I was born with, right? So I think anyone can do anything they set their mind to. That's a growth mindset. And the other thing, I have a a strong, what's called a promotion mindset, which is I'm okay with taking a risk if there's a chance of a really good payoff. Whereas most Mm. people and sort of the human default is a more prevention mindset where I just don't want to lose, right? If I lose, I can always start over again because I have a growth mindset. I can definitely tell that in you when I look at your journey. (laughs) It's wonderful. Jana, how can people connect with you? The best way to reach out to me personally is on LinkedIn. It's linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Johanna Lyman, J-O-H-A-N-N-A-L-Y-M-A-N. And then our company website is wearekadabra.com and that's K-A-D-A-B-R-A. We help leaders grow interpersonally, professional development. We do teamwork development and systems change. So anything from strategic planning, we focus on culture, innovation, and inclusion. So strategic planning and becoming more innovative and doing the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Thank you so much, Jana. I will definitely share those links in the show notes as well. It was so lovely speaking to you and thank you for all the great advice and tips you gave us. Thank you again for having me. It's really been a pleasure, Tanya. Take good care. Thank you again so much, Jana, for sharing about your success strategies and mindsets. So what do you think of the conversation we just had? I want us to reflect together for the next minute. I want you to keep in mind what Joanna spoke about. If someone from outside looked at your business, what would they see? Would they see this value or values in specific behaviors or actions? Or when they interact with you? What is one thing that you can go to next? Maybe it's making time to sit down and think about your core values. Is there some way that you can improve on that? Would it help you to implement a scorecard for your business? I want you to pick one clear action step, one thing that you'll do next to go improve on what you're currently doing because you need to take action to get results. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this episode, it is that your company culture is strongly influenced by your chosen mindset and the action steps that you choose to take. Taking a stand for something will always take effort. But the payoff that you can get, the positive impact that you can create for yourself, for your employees, for your customers, for the broader community is so worth it. If this episode helped you to think about this in a different way or to think of it more deeply, please do share it with a friend who you know will also benefit from hearing about Johanna's journey and how values and a growth mindset 
can truly help you build a brave company culture that impacts. Until the next episode, I have an invitation for you. Please tell us more about why you're listening. There's a survey on the podcast that you'll find the link for in the show notes. Completing this survey will really help me to serve you better. I want to understand what the challenges are that you're going through, what would really help you move forward in building your business. You can think of this survey as your wish list, where you can let me know what you like, what you don't like, (laughs) what you'd like more of, and even make suggestions for things we haven't tried yet. I love experimenting, and I'm so open to your ideas about what direction you would like to see this podcast move towards to support you. Thank you if you've already done the survey. I have been reading every response. I do read every submission myself. As part of the survey, there is a draw for one of three $25 gift cards for completing the survey that you can also uh, take a part in as a thank you gift from me to you. I'd really love to hear what you think. Do let me know. Please remember the information in this podcast was made with much care, love and thoughtfulness with the main intention to inspire and support you with encouraging insights. It aligns with my value to try and make a positive impact on you. And it's for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for specific advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. So I always recommend that you keep in mind that any action plan should include seeking the advice from a professional if your situation is complex and requires it. Use your judgment and conduct your due diligence before taking any action or implementing any plan or policy suggested or recommended on this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Advantage with me, Tanya. This continues to be your startup's advantage because every first-time founder needs the advantage of having guidance in the early stages of building their business. Until the next episode, stay safe.